Well, I do apologize if you brought your scripture journal for the Sermon on the Mount series. We're taking a break from it this morning. Let's find Second Chronicles chapter 14. We're going to an Old Testament um, book of history, really. It's a historical account of a uh, time of the, the kings of Israel and Judah at this time as the nation's been split um, a couple kings prior. And so the, the nation of Israel that used to be one whole nation is now split into two parts. There's a northern kingdom of Israel and there's a southern kingdom of Judah. And so this really, what we're going to look at today is the era where these kings started kind of going at it. They're starting to fight each other. There's ill will towards one another and the kingdom split happened because the son of Solomon um, made some pretty bad decisions when it came to advice that he listened to and direction that he took. And there's a whole lesson to be found in that. But here this morning, as we take a look at um, this passage in Second Chronicles, we're going to focus in chapter 16, but I have you turn to Second Chronicles 14 because I'm going to be kind of filling in some, some space behind it to give you context for what we're talking about. We're talking about the reign of King Asa of Judah. He is the grandson of, uh, or the great grandson, excuse me, of Solomon. So as the great grandson of Solomon, there is a history of not only kings who did well for a certain period of time, but of kings who failed. Kings who in the end fell away or did not serve the Lord with their whole heart for the entirety of their uh, kingship. And so although Solomon, um, and the son Rehoboam and Rehoboam's son Abijah were men, who followed in the footsteps of Solomon himself and not following the Lord with their whole heart. They were led astray by, by idolatry and they compromised in many ways. King Asa, who became, became king following his father Abijah, he was a man who gave himself to God. He actually committed himself to God. This is one of those cool spots of scripture when you're reading about the kings, you're like, all right, this guy's doing it right. He's actually serving the Lord. He's actually doing things the way that they should be done. In fact, we read this in Second Chronicles 14, 4 through 5, just as a little snippet here. It says this about King Asa. It says, He told the people of Judah to seek the Lord God of their ancestors and to carry out the instruction and the commands. He also removed the high places and the shrines from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom experienced peace under him. This is kind of that contextual overview statement because overall, Asa was seen as a good king who was devoted to God. That's how he was remembered. He brought revival to the southern nation of Judah as he turned people back to the worship of God. But before he really got into that period of his reign that was filled with peace, there was a test for him that came. There was a way that God allowed him to be tested to see if he would actually be a man or a king that followed after God the king. So before his spiritual reforms began, he was put to the test. Look at Second Chronicles 14, verses 8 through 13 with me. It'll be on the screen as well. But if you have your Bible, go ahead and take a look at it. It says this, Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing regular shields and drawing the bow. All these were valiant warriors. Verse 9 says, Then Zerah the Cushite came against them with an army of one million men and 300 chariots. They came as far as Merishah. So Asa marched out against him and lined up in battle formation in Zephathoth Valley at Merishah. You try saying that. Verse 11 says, Then Asa cried out to the Lord his God, Lord, there is no one beside you to help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord our God, for we depend on you, and in your name we have come against this large army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. That's a good prayer. 
Check out what happens in verse 12. So the Lord routed the Cushites before Asa and before Judah and the Cushites fled. Then Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. The Cushites fell until they had no survivors for they were crushed before the Lord and his army. So the people of Judah carried God the prayer king because the king of Lut. So the Lord gives them this victory. Here's the, he loves them because it's giving honor to him and recognizing that there's no victory that can be won for the mighty or for the weak that cannot be given by God. This is God's thing. This is something that only God can do is give true victory. And the Cushites had the upper hand. They had the chariots. They had not only more fighting men, but the chariots was the tank of the ancient world. And you notice when it references the kind of army that Asa was working with in Judah, he had quite a few people fighting for him, but he didn't have the chariots. And if you didn't have those chariots and you were fighting people on semi-open ground, which in that region, that's what it would be, kind of southwest of Jerusalem, you are going to need some chariots to fight against these guys, but not if you have God on your side. Because it doesn't matter what kind of means or what kind of resources the world has, so long as we are devoted to God. So long as we are devoted to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he will bring us the victory if that be his will. Amen? We need to rely on him. We need to be devoted to him. And so the Cushites, even though they had the upper hand, As we see is often the case throughout the Old Testament, when God's people turn to him, the reward for devotion is deliverance. The reward for their devotion to God was him delivering them. We see that echo in our lives as well. Now, it may not be the type of deliverance that you want, but if we devote ourselves to God, he delivers us from sin. He delivers us unto a kingdom eternal. Amen? So that's why we are trust ourselves to God. Now, the victories in our lives, sometimes we get caught up and we're like, well, why am I not defeating all my foes? Well, first of all, you're leaving this in God's hands. That's exactly what they did. They left it in God's hands. We're going out. We're going to step forward. We're asking you, God, to act on our part. We're relying on you. That's what we're supposed to do as well. And the reward for devotion is deliverance. Such was the case for Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Jephthah, Saul, David. You see all these men. And what's crazy is, in, in, and you see God working in powerful ways through people throughout the Old Testament. What's awesome when you look at that list of people, and it's extensive. You can look at Deborah. You can look at the, at the judges that God uses throughout that period. What's awesome when you look at the people that God used is there's nothing impressive about them. There's nothing impressive about them. You're like, well, I mean, King David, Mike, I mean, come on. He did some crazy stuff. I mean, Goliath, I mean, there's, that's impressive. Be like, David was so unimpressive. He wasn't even invited to the meeting where Samuel was going to anoint the next king. He wasn't even worthy to be invited. Like, yeah, he's out with the sheep. You want to meet David? <laughs> he's like, well, bring him out here. And lo and behold, he's the king. Even Saul, when in some ways you look at him, he's like, he's head and shoulders above all the man of Benjamin. He was dreamy. The girls would have loved him. You know, and Saul shows up. And what is he doing the first time God wants him to go into battle and fight for his people? He's hiding. He's hiding amongst the hay, like to feed the animals. are like, guys, our commander in chief is wetting himself back over there. We need to drag him out and make this guy take us into battle, right? He, there's nothing impressive about a guy like, please don't make me fight. You know, there's the, the thing that these people have in common is that God was the one who gave them these victories. God was the one who was honored through what they were able to do. That's the point. You look at yourself, you're like, I can't do anything right. Great. That means when something happens, that victory 
can be given to God. It means the glory can be given to God. Because if we look great doing it, if we look super cool doing it, who's going to get the glory? We are. It's by design that God often uses these types of people. And whenever you see the odds stacked up against God's people and they cry out to the Lord, get ready. He's about to do something and he is going to be glorified in that. These people, and I believe just like us, were used to bring victory not only to Israel, but God wants to bring victory through us, the church, because we exemplify the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. We exemplify the weak that only God can make strong. And so King Asa was used in this way, outnumbered, facing way more firepower than he had. He turned to the Lord, and his devotion to God brought deliverance. What a cool story. Let's pray. Just kidding. It, it's so vital that we end well. It's so vital that we stay the course, that we endure the challenges, because 35 years pass, and, and Asa has a time of peace. There's peace. And after 30-some-odd years of peace, you would think that everything was fine. you think that the challenges were over. You're in cruise control at that point, right? 35 years from now, I won't... I'll probably be dead. But if, if I was... if. <laughs> If I've been doing the same thing for, for 35, I would think that I'd have this down, right? You, you get into a groove after a while. A couple of years even, you're like, I kind of got this down, right? You know what's crazy is when people start to think that they have something down, that's usually when they get hurt, right? It wasn't the first time I jumped over the stack of chairs that I tore my ACL. It was the second time. That's how it always works for me, right? Todd's <laughs> like, that's why we always tell Mike, just stay on your feet up against a wall for the whole Nerf War right? This is what happens to me at youth events. That's why they don't let me play with the kids anymore. They're like, no, 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 you guys will be fine. Mike just is going to get hurt. You're going to hurt the old man. You guys, this time of revival and peace comes in chapter 15. Things are going great. Following the victory of the Cushites, chapter 15 comes a spiritual revival under the reign of the of the king in chapter 15, verse 2, it'll be on the screen. It's this, this man of God comes, he's filled with the spirit. And he says, the Lord is with you when you are with him. He just gives him this reminder, stay with God. It's, it's, it has the echoes in the new Testament of when James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you long for the Lord, he's not going to hide from you. He's going to come. He's going to work in your life. And in verse 7, which is one of my favorites in the Old Testament of chapter 15, it, it has echoes of Joshua 1 in it as that same man of God says, but as for you, be strong, don't give up, for your work has a reward. That encouragement to keep doing what's right. I not only see echoes from Joshua chapter 1 when he's like, be strong and courageous, the Lord is with you. But I also see that reminder that Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 6 verse 9, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. In due season you'll reap if you don't give up. Same idea here as this man of God tells King Asa, as for you, be strong, don't give up. Your work has a reward. What you're doing matters. You may be in the grind. You may be in that process where things don't look so great or you're not getting the results that you want. We cannot become result-based believers. We are not here to get results. We are here to be faithful. We are here to be obedient. Don't get caught up in the results you're seeing. So Asa continues the work and he removes idolatry from the nation and those who encouraged it, even though it was family. He removed 
all of the influences of idolatry. And there was no war. There was peace. But in the 36th year of his reign, something happens. Check it out. Let's pick up in Second Chronicles 16. This is kind of our primary section. In the 36th year of Asa, Israel's king, Bashah, went to war against Judah. Now, remember I told you there's a split in the kingdom. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now you've got the northern king attacking the southern king. He built Ramah in order to keep anyone from leaving or coming to King Asa of Judah, by the way, if you're curious. I'm sorry, I'm just adding these little anecdotes. Ramah would be in the Jericho region. That was a primary way for people to come from the north and travel into the nation of Israel approaching from the east. That's a common road used. And so he's building up Ramah in order to prevent anyone from leaving or coming to Jerusalem or Judah. He's cutting off the traffic, if so to speak. So Asa brought out the silver and gold from the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the royal palace and sent it to Aram's king Ben-Hadad, who lived in Damascus. This would be modern-day Syria. Saying this, there's a treaty between me and you, between my father and your father. Look, I've sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Israel's king Bashah so that he will withdraw from me. Verse 4 reads, Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies to the cities of Israel. That would be the northern nation, the one who's attacking Judah. They attacked Ejon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and Ark. They Judah, made the stone that Timber had heard about it. He quit building Ramah and stopped his work. And king Asa, and they carried away members of Bashah, built it with. Then he built Geba and Mizpah with them. Anything about that opening section of chapter 16 strike you as odd? God? No, but you guys understand, right? Like there's something odd about that. What's odd about it as compared to what we've already read? He bribed a foreign king to get victory. He bribed a foreign king who had a treaty with northern Israel to break that treaty and to give reason or cause for Bashah to withdraw. <laughs> I didn't mean for that to sound so cool, but it did. Here's something to take note of. If we stopped there, you might think that Asa did the right thing. Why? Because it worked. Church, just because something works doesn't make it a victory. Just because you pulled it off doesn't mean that God was in it. There's a danger. There's a warning here that strikes me so loudly because so many times we don't justify what we're doing by whether God has said it's right or wrong. We justify what we're doing based upon whether it's working or not. Whether we're getting the result or the victory that we want. 36 year of his reign. Things have gone well. There's been peace and the king turns to money And did you notice where that money came from? He took it from the temple. Who does that belong to? Who's it belong to? Belongs to God. He stole from God to pay a foreign king to give him a victory. You guys, he turned to bribery and to reliance upon the strength of another nation to save his kingdom. If devotion to God leads to deliverance, then rejection of God leads to turmoil. Here's the rub. Oftentimes, this is a delay. There's a delay in the system. It looks like victory up front. And that's where the temptation for us comes. 
to continue in that pattern of thinking that even though I'm not obeying exactly what God has said, I can compromise and get away with it and God's fine with it. Do you think that when this happened, Asa figured God was fine with it? Probably for a season. Until this pesky little guy named Hanani came along. What a turd. Don't you hate it when people speak truth? Now, before I get to that part, I want us to really think about this for a second. How I go about providing for my family's needs, it needs to be done in a way that glorifies God. How I do things matters. It's not the result. If we're, if we're getting rid of this ideology that the result is what matters, the ends justify the means. We all know that's garbage. But a lot of times we act like that in our lives. Like as long as I get the result I want, it doesn't matter how I get there. It doesn't matter if I can, you know, if, if I can, um, if I have to steal or lie or cheat or swindle or do whatever it is to get this end result, I need to get that end result. And in the end, it's, so long as I have this thing here, then we're good. And a lot of times we look at the obvious, at the blatant, and we're like, no, see, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not okay. But how often do we have just this slight twist in our theology, a slight twist in our belief of God, or just a little thing in the Bible that we don't agree with, and we run with that, Is God going to let that last forever? Is he not going to deal with that? He's going to deal with it because he loves us. Hebrews chapter 12 talks all about how he disciplines the son that he loves and that we should receive that discipline. Here's the thing. If this message this morning is convicting us as a church, we need to respond to it now because God will deal with it as a loving father with discipline. If there is sin in our lives that we're excusing, that we're saying it's not that big of a deal, this is so common in culture, at least I'm not like that person, God is going to deal with those things because he has called us to holiness. He has called his people to holiness. He has not called us to look at the standard of the world and be a little bit better. He didn't call his church at the beginning of the founding of the church to just be a little bit better than the Romans. He called them to holiness. How I go about the things that I do matters. How I manage a business or go about my work should be done in a way that glorifies God. It's not just about having a good bottom line. It's about how I got there. It's about the way I got there. These things matter to the Lord. There are no shortcuts. There are no deceptive methods which we should ever feel comfortable taking just to merely get her done. It matters the way you get her done. And please don't ever say that again, Mike. We were almost out of the woods with that. The process that we use in this life must glorify the King of Kings and be reliant upon his resource, not on the resources of the world. The resources of the world can be used amorally, meaning it can be used for good or bad. You could take money and use it for evil. You can take money and use it for good. But the way we go about those things is going to reveal our character and who we are in the eyes of God, how we go about our daily things, how we go about what we do in this life matters. It's not just about getting the victory. It's about how we got it. Colossians 3, 23 through 25 says this, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. 
For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he's done, and there's no favoritism. We're serving the Lord. Our reward comes from him. And so how we get from here to there matters that it glorifies him in the process. Proverbs 3, which we know Proverbs 3, 5, and maybe 3, 6 decently well. Let's go 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear of the Lord turns us away from evil. Fearing and respecting and honoring God will naturally turn and curve us away from wickedness and evil. God sees. He knows what we're doing. And even though it seems like the plan has worked out, even though it seems like what you have done that should not be done hasn't been noticed and you've gotten away with it, God has seen. This convicts every single one of us. God has seen. Repentance is in order. Repentance is in order so that we can be restored, so that we can continue forward. God saw what King Asa did. And so in verse 7, at that time, the seer Hanani came to King Asa of Judah and said to him, because you depended on the king of Aram and have not depended on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from you. Didn't think of that. Verse 8, were not the Cushites and Libyans a vast army with many chariots and horsemen? When you depended on the Lord, he handed them over to you. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. Can I read that again? The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. You have been foolish in this matter. Therefore, you will have wars from now on. Verse 10, King Asa was enraged with the seer and put him in prison because of his anger over this. And Asa mistreated some of the people at that time. Let's point out a couple things here. Number one, God has a plan. And it takes patience and devotion on our part to him to see it come to fruition. What Asa thought was a victory because the end goal that he desired was accomplished. What was it that God wanted to do? God wanted to deliver to kings, the king of Aram, his army, into his hands. God had a massive plan through all of this. God had a huge victory. We're talking about the defeat of Ben-Hadad. We're talking about the defeat of northern Syria, which was powerful at this time. We're talking about the subduing of a power that was oppressing God's people. And all Asa was, was able to do was basically have them chased off. He had the nation of northern Israel chased off from what they were doing, and he used this army of pagan people to do it when God was like, I was going to hand those pagans to you. I was going to defeat your enemies. You allied with them. You allied with the ones I was going to give you victory over. That's the one that counted. That's the that's, That was God's plan. And when God has a plan, you guys, we cannot get impatient with it. We cannot get impatient with it because we don't like it. Because it's uncomfortable. It's not what we want. If only God would just, we're already in the wrong. 
And we think like that, don't we? Why hasn't God acted? Immediately, we're using the phraseology of I know better. I know better than he knows, and I need God to do something now. Why doesn't he act now? The psalmist says that, but he says it in a way that's like crying out to God and, and, and it's seeking after God responding. But a lot of times we say that and then we go do our own thing. Why God? How long? I'm just, I'm just echoing the Psalms. I'm like, yeah, but then when you take action against him, you are doing what the failed kings of Israel have done. And it doesn't work out so well. In fact, this man of God looks at him and says, you have been foolish in this matter. It may look like a victory for a moment, but in reality it wasn't. It was a defeat. He had taken a defeat and thought it was a win. The victory God had intended to give the nation of Judah was never realized. Compromise with sin is always nearsighted. Compromise with sin is always nearsighted. What that means is we aren't seeing the big picture. When I compromise with sin, I am not grasping the big picture of the ramifications of that sin or what will truly honor God. Do not compromise with sin. You don't have the vision to see what God sees. You have to trust him. That's why your devotion to God will bring deliverance and your rejection of God will bring shackles. It'll bring failure. God warns us through these passages. Compromise with sin is always nearsighted and Jesus didn't pull punches. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You're like, whoa, that's a shift. I mean, I thought that we're talking about victory in my life. You understand your life is a part of his story, correct? You understand whatever thing you're doing here on this earth is a part of his story. He is not a part of your story. We're just not big enough. We are created. He is creator. I'm a part of Jesus's story. And so immediately when I reject his counsel, when I reject what he wants me to do, when I reject what he's commanded me to do, it shows a lack of love and affection and relationship between he and I. It's showing that I love the world more than I love him. And Jesus said, if you love me, you do my commandments. You notice that he doesn't say the opposite. If you do my commandments, then you will love me. Why? I've talked about this a lot recently. BJ did a sermon about it that pointed out in great detail how this works. Because if you win the heart, you get the mind, not the other direction. If you win the mind, you don't get the heart. People are running around trying to obey and make God happy, but they don't know him. That's why so many are going to come before him and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. They're like, Lord, we did all of these amazing things in your name. He's like, I didn't know you. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you have a relationship with the Lord, your life will start arcing towards glorifying him naturally. Will there be hard decisions? Yes. There will be difficulty. But if you are in a loving relationship with Jesus, that will steer your life. It will steer you towards him and the glorification of his name. A lack of love for God. A lack of devotion to him leads to destruction. Dependence on God, this is something we need to get. Dependence on God is never weakness. It's strength. Being dependent on God is never a weakness. It may look like weakness to the world. He will use that to confound the wise. He will be made powerful. In fact, he told Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my 
power is made perfect in your weakness. I perfect my strength when you are weak. Because when I come to God and I say it's all about you, he goes, yep, you're right. And then he receives the glory when he brings the victory. When you depended on the Lord, Hananiah tells Asa, he handed them over to you. He gave you the true victory. We don't have to scheme our way out of situations. We remember to rely on the strength of our God. Remember what he's done. Remember that he saved you, that he saved me, that he saved his people from the Cushites. And the prophet of God says to Asa, remember what God did then? Why didn't you do that now? Why didn't you do that again? He gave you all these years of peace. He gave you all this rest. Church, how often do we take matters into our own hands because we can't see any other way to do it? It's because you don't have his vision. It's not because there's no other way. You are confined to your own limitations and you aren't trusting him to do it without any limitations in his way. Isaiah chapter 40 is pretty well known. Verses 28 through 31. We know the ending of this passage really well, but I want to read it all in context. Isaiah writes this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Who is able to do all that? Those who trust in the Lord, not those who get them gains at the gym. It doesn't work like that. Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They are the ones who have the strength to go forward, not because they're relying on their own ability, but because they are relying on the strength that God possesses. And Hanani reminds Asa in verse 9, he says, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. We should know this so much more so because the Holy Spirit, Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within us. We know that he dwells within us. How much strength, how much encouragement should we gain from knowing that the Lord is leading and guiding our life? I look at myself and I feel like I have less of an excuse to trust in God than even the king did at this time because his Holy Spirit is right here, powerfully present in my life because of what Jesus has done. I have so much evidence of his power, his ability, and what he can do. Maybe we're facing things right now that are too big for us. Maybe you're facing something that's too big for you, a temptation. Something that you've tried to fight on your own. You've tried to obey. You've tried to walk, but you're lacking the strength. There could be a couple things going on there. One is for anyone in the room or anyone watching online. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you don't know the Savior. Maybe you're one of those people that knows all about the Bible, but you don't have a relationship with Christ, and so the power is not there. Maybe you need to receive Christ. For some of us, I think that we start to go back to our old ways. 
Asa had had this devotion to God 35 years before. He had trusted the Lord when their lives were on the line and God brought this amazing victory. But maybe we're in his shoes at this point where somewhere down the line, a few decades later, we're starting to rely on stuff more than we, more, more than we are on God. We're starting to rely on the provision he's given us more than the provider. Maybe we're starting to rely on the resources that he has so generously lavished on us instead of relying on the resource of those things the one who they come from. It starts to wear you out. You start feeling like Bilbo, like butter scraped over too much bread. Sometimes things really speak to me. We just say I'm spread too thin, but I I just hear Bilbo say it. You guys, the enemy is always attempting to whisper in our ear, very similar to what you hear in the garden. Did he really say that? Did God really say that? Do you really think he can do that? He wants to whisper in your ear, there's an easier way, you know. These people over here don't need God. They're doing just fine. They got away with it. He'll forgive you. He'll be gracious. You know God's gracious, right? You ever hear that voice? Okay, I'm the only weird one. That's cool. Do you guys... He's lying. He's lying to us. Satan is lying to us, trying to get us to look at the world and think that we can do things their way and still honor God. That we can rely on the things of this world and still be pleasing to God. And even if we get away for it for a season, remember this lesson from the king. It matters how we do things. It matters how we go about things. The process must honor God. And I believe that the words of Hannah and I ring true for us as well as for King Asa when he said the eyes of the Lord roam the earth to show himself strong. For who? Those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. God doesn't want some small piece of you. Jesus is not going to accept the closet within your heart that you want him to clean up. He wants to come in and fill you. He wants the Spirit to come into to us and flow out of us like a torrent of living water. He wants to impact the people around us as well as change us from the inside out. He didn't say, I'm going to come in and do some nice work in this place. Um, you know, we're going to probably change some windows out, but you can keep the flooring. It's not like that. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are a new creation. All the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He has changed everything. He has renewed everything. And he wants all of us. Let us not be like King Asa, who was foolish in this matter, who had done so much good. But not only did something wrong, but did you notice how the story ended? He not only did the wrong thing, he didn't receive the rebuke. He didn't receive the correction. Instead, he imprisoned the man who spoke truth and he oppressed the people. And Asa, if you read the rest of the chapter, which I encourage you to do, gets a disease in his feet and looks to physicians and won't cry out to God. His kingship ends badly. Now he's seen on the whole as a good king. But he didn't come down the home stretch very well. He didn't run his race with endurance. In fact, he stumbled at the end and struggled. 
and he oppressed people because of it. Your sin, your failure, your lack of rebuke, when I am not humble and receive rebuke, it hurts not just me. It hurts other people. It hurts those around me that God wants to bless and change. Those who are wholeheartedly devoted to God receive rebuke. They are fast to their knees in repentance. Be a person who's quick to your knees in repentance before God. And no matter what they go through, they glorify God in the process of going through it because the process matters. Our devotion to God will lead to deliverance one way or another. We want to be people that are salt, preventing decay in the world. We want to be light that shines in the darkness. And to do this, we need to be a people that's wholeheartedly devoted to him and him alone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the examples of the Old Testament. We thank you for the examples, God, that we have been able to see of uh, men and women, Lord, who uh, did so many cool things to honor you, but God also uh, failed just as we have failed. And Lord, something that always strikes me when I look at the, the stories of the kings is how often they'll do well and fail. But Lord, I always think of David, how when he was caught in his sin, he repented. Lord, that what distinguished David as a man after your heart is that not that he didn't fail, but when he did, he cried out to you. He was broken over that failure. Lord, none of us have done it perfectly. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short. But God, there is redemption and restoration for those who are humble and willing to confess, willing to repent. Lord, we are always just confession and repentance away from restoration. There may be consequences here to some of the things that we've struggled with. There may be consequences to sin that we've allowed to dwell within us. But Lord, I pray that you would embolden us by the power of your spirit to cry out to you, Lord, save us from our sin. Cleanse us again. We want to be a people that's wholeheartedly devoted to you. Let's take a moment with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, Let's just seek the Lord on these things and then we'll close in a song. But let's, let's ask God to to search our hearts and know us. To try us and know our thoughts. To see if there be any wicked way or wicked sin that is dwelling within us and to lead us in the way that's everlasting, which is His way. In this time of prayer, ask the Lord to open your eyes to see things through his perspective. Maybe we won't have his vision. But for what we can see, Lord, allow us to see. And for what we cannot see, give us faith. Help our unbelief. Let's take a moment just to pray with our heads bowed.